Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where I get to chat with all kinds of interesting pioneers in the world of entrepreneurship. And today is my chat with Jeff Warren. Jeff is a meditation teacher who some call the meditation MacGyver. He's the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, which he co-wrote with ABC News anchor Dan Harris. He's also the founder of the Consciousness Explorers Club, a nonprofit meditation group in Toronto. In this episode, Jeff and I discuss various forms of meditation practice, Jeff's books, of course, and how developing a regular practice can help with ADD, anxiety, and depression. So without delay, here we go, my conversation with the meditation MacGyver himself, Jeff Warren. Jeff Warren, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Writer, meditation teacher, entrepreneur. You started Consciousness Explorers Club in Toronto. I want to ask you about that later on in the episode. But let's go back to the early days of how you got into meditation and um, and your first book that you authored called Head Trip. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. As far as the Head Trip goes, I mean, it's sort of one of those things where where do you start the story? Because it it's a lifetime of being interested in consciousness and how my mind worked, trying to understand it from being a little kid, you know, trying to lucid dream you know, as a teenager and being interested in that and having a few strange sort of experiences in my room about just one, what is the mind? What is the nature of the mind? What is the expanse of the mind? Like I kept getting, I would have these experiences where I would try to imagine the boundaries of my mind and I would, you know, weird stuff happened. And so I was kind of, that was kind of interesting. This is not drug related this <laughs> just being a kid I think probably lots of kids have these experiences and forget about them um and so but they always kind of percolate into the surface and then I um I had an injury when I was 20 where I broke my neck and that injury actually really had a strong effect on my the way I process information like my consciousness sort of changed not in a good way it just made me it exaggerated my ADD and it was quite a dramatic contrast so that also got me very interested in, well, what was going on inside? How did, how did thinking work? How did the brain work? So I ended up at a meditation retreat, you know, 2004. And um, this was in Scotland, actually, a Buddhist center. And mm-hmm. it was kind of one of those life-changing experiences. I didn't realize it was life-changing at the time because meditation was really hard. <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. I also understand part of the reason it was hard is because I had a whole bunch of projections and ideals of what it was supposed to be like. But uh, for whatever reason, I, I persevered and the setting of it, the, the sincerity of other meditators and the way people, you know, the way people talked about the practice was really interesting to me. And it kind of convinced me that there was, you know, that this was something I wanted for my life. From that moment on, I, I got kind of hair on fire, like they say in Zen, about meditation. And I just filled my time with every possible retreat, as many retreats as I could go to and as many different traditions, mostly within Buddhism, but other I practiced, you know, in India with a uh, few Vedantic traditions and 
yogic stuff. And I just went nuts and went and did as much as I could because I wanted to understand what these practices had to teach me about who I was. And, um, and as I did it, I started to see more and more that I was somebody who was very, had a lot of suffering and a lot of dysregulation, was really unhappy in lots of ways. Um, and the practices made a, a real impact. And to say nothing of how they really blow the lid off your, <laughs> in terms of your ideas about the potential of the mind and what the mind, how it works and all the rest of it. So, you know, it became a thing where your, your person, the kind of investigation, almost the scientific investigation into understanding the mind and what is the nature of these things merges with the personal investigation to address your own stuff. And it just becomes one journey. And now that's very much how it is for me now. Teaching joined that stream and it's just a single integrated path of kind of trying to learn about all this stuff. So um, I guess in the context of all of your research and deep dive into meditation, was it, I mean, was your primary objective to get a better insight or understanding into your ADD or was there other stuff going on? Where did this interest percolate for you? So there's a thing in meditation, at least in the insight side of meditation called the the progress of insight. It's kind of this uh, a model for understanding how practice develops. And what happens via the progress of insight is you start to see with more clarity what's really going on in your experience, what your sort of neurotic struggles are, what your challenges are. When I started out, I had very little insight into myself. I just sort of rocketed around from thing to thing, just let my interest propel me in a kind of mindless way. I didn't really understand that I was in a lot of ways dysregulated and not that happy. Mm -hmm. As I started to do practice, I started to see the extent of uh, what I was struggling with. I wouldn't have even then have articulated that ADD was a big problem. I would have kind of made a joke about it. Oh, yeah, I'm a little ADD. But I didn't really see to the degree to which that was propelling my life. And in addition to that, uh, a lot of mood dysregulation, being in strongly different moods from day to day and not having any idea how they didn't seem to be connected to what was happening externally. They were seemed to be sort of endogenous on their own rhythm. And I didn't appreciate that was abnormal or that was causing me challenges. I just thought that was how it was. So the, you know, the meditation practice, people often have this idea that meditation practice is going to cure you of your personality somehow, which is just so hilariously wrong. <laughs> it's like, I mean, medica meditation can provide some dramatic uh, reductions in suffering and reorientations that I'm happy to go into. But uh, particularly as we begin, you know, in the first few years, it's much more about getting clear about your symptoms and learning how to accept uh, the reality of your challenges. And that in itself is enormously healing. And so it, it can really help manage a lot of the secondary symptoms, but it may not fundamentally change your ADD or fundamentally change your bipolar disorder or your depression, although it can happen. That can happen too. You know, you had very little insight into yourself. And then, of course, you mentioned that you started as a terrible meditator. You thought you were bad at it. So how did you, how did you begin as a meditator and how did you improve as a meditator? And I guess begin to gain more insight into yourself and become less, quote unquote, dysregulated. Yeah. So, you know, it's a long and ongoing story. The key to a meditation practice is really interest. People think, oh, I've got to go and sit down, close my eyes and follow the breath. But there's lots of people for whom they don't really, they're not really interested in the breath. Or we're not, it doesn't really interest them or it's not compelling to them. Or even a seated practice is just too, they got too much agitation 
It doesn't really, it's not the right kind of thing for them. It can be. You might be very agitated and not, and think you don't like the breath, but you sit down and it turns out to be okay. But it's taken me years to figure out that the, what propelled me deeper into practice was I had a fundamental interest that I was able to follow. So my interest was in the mind itself. I was interested in the layers of the mind, how, how thoughts worked, trying to catch thoughts out, the visual aspect of thoughts, the auditory. I was interested in my emotional feelings and responses. So I had a lot of success at the beginning after this initial stage of being not very concentrated and having a hard time because I was trying to work with the breath and it wasn't seemingly working with, for me. And sometimes it would work. Sometimes I'd be, I'd be more concentrated. And because I was still interested in the practice of meditation, that interest was enough to kind of allow me to start to get some stability there so that it happened. But it really wasn't until I met my main teacher, this guy Shinzen Young, that it really clicked for me because he was a nerd and he talked about practice in a way that piqued my interest. So he talked about you know, working with thoughts, working with emotional activations. He made those things that sound very abstract, very trackable and, and tangible. Even the Buddha had a line about this, you know, it's like you take the raft across the river and the raft is like the technique, you know, it's the, he, he talked about it a little differently than, than I'm talking about it, but it's still the form. And eventually when you get across the river, it's like, okay, well, I don't need the form anymore. And you just throw the raft away because now you've, quote, arrived, although the whole idea of arriving is a bit problematic, so <laughs> we can talk about that, too. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. there, you hit you hit on so many points, and I want to ask you about Shinzen, but I first want to hit on exactly uh, this point about technique. So mm -hmm. I started meditating in 2014, had some stuff happen, came into meditation when I was listening to Russell Simmons on, I can't remember if he was on a podcast or if I was listening to him uh, on the radio, and he was talking about his book, Success Through Stillness, and I got intrigued, and so I bought the book, and I read the book, and I began with TM, Transcendental Meditation, for those that don't understand what TM is, and it was okay. I found it challenging because it was new and unfamiliar, and then started reading some stuff from Sam Harris and some more stuff on Vipassana or mindfulness meditation, and so began um, a different type of practice, and I haven't quite been able to stay regular, probably because I don't have the confidence in which practice works best for me. So I guess the question is, for somebody like me or somebody else that's struggling with uh, oscillating between different ways of practice and they don't know which practice is beneficial for them, how would you advise that individual to figure that out? Yeah, well, I mean, it's the million-dollar question. So the first thing I would say is to be patient in your inquiry. It can take a little bit of time. you got to have it in your head in the, have a framework in your head that this is a period of exploring, that I'm allowed to explore a few different techniques and different kinds of teachers and begin to get us and be curious about what seems to be working for me. And what I would then suggest is doing exactly that. So starting with, I mean, there's different ways you can do this. There's so many different meditations online. There's lots of free ones on my site. There's ones at the Conscious Explorers site. There's ones of lots of other resources. Uh, or you go with different sit groups or you can, you know, or one of the apps. The very first question you want to ask yourself is movement or stillness. Stillness, there's a reason for seated meditations. I mean, they really, they are really beautiful. And they, if you, eventually they teach you how to be okay with whatever's going on, independent of conditions, because you're just, if you can be okay with nothing going on, that's mm -hmm. really one of the things that's being trained. But at the same time, for a lot of us, we have a lot of energy and agitation. It may not be right place to start, in which case a very, I would say a very slow moving movement practice, you know, where 
you could be standing in meditation and doing this and just moving your arms very slowly, or you could be very intentionally weaving in a kind of body scan or a mindfulness practice into a very slow yoga practice or a qigong or a martial art. So that would be the very first thing I would say. And then, or you'd find out that actually being still is okay. And then I would go from there into start with probably a concentration practice. And it would be about finding the right object. So I would just explore the breath for a little bit and see if you, in working with the sensation of the breath, are you able to get absorbed? And does that feel kind of good? Does it feel like there's a natural flow to that there? And recognizing that there's going to always be an up and down in a practice. So there'll be days when things are going well and not. That just complicates everything. Mm-hmm. And then I might explore sound a little bit, ambient sounds, and see if those maybe are more uh, how you feel about those. Often we find lots of things that we can work with, or you can work with other sensations in the body. So you could try a few different objects and just sort of see, hey, what, what clicks here? But then there's also different styles of seated practice. So what I just described is a fairly conventional kind of concentration practice with a little bit of mindfulness in the sense that you're trying to be aware of what's going on. But you can do a loving kindness practice where you're, you know what, the, the whole exploring the mind thing or getting into the breath isn't so much work so well, well for you, but doing a self-compassion practice or doing a compassion practice for your, for people that you know in your life, that works with you. You're a kind of pro-social person, you know, and that's a beautiful, legitimate practice. You could do that practice for your entire life and it would just yield wonderful yeah, humanistic infused dividends. Or you could do a practice that is about forgetting all this stuff that I just said, because boy, it sounds like a lot of work and pretty complicated. You do a practice of just sitting and being and not having to try to control your attention in any way, just Mm. chilling inside your stoop and learning to be okay accepting your experience. That's a, those forms of practices are many flavors of that. Those are good as well. So the reason I lay all that out is sometimes you get lucky. You sit down, the practice is the right practice right away. But Mm -hmm. for other times, it's just about going, having this period of exploring. You know, when I used to teach my Consciousness Explorers uh, way, the Consciousness Explorer class in in Toronto, I would basically do it over seven weeks. and I would take people through something like 15 different techniques. So everyone would get a chance to really experience what those styles were like, what some of those objects were like. And then the idea being after having done that big exploration, we helped them identify a kind of go-to practice. And I feel like some version of that is still a, not a bad idea for a lot of us. Yeah, there's and there's so many options. There's so many guided apps. I think people are exhausted by the amount of choice, frankly. So true. Um, they don't know where to start. I mean, I was, I was flirting with Calm and Headspace for a little while, and I did those, and I tried those, and then I started playing... Um, you know, a certain audio track on YouTube and I would sit down and just concentrate on being present, listening to that same audio track every day. And that was a practice for a little while. Now I'm back to concentration on the breath and, and presence and mindfulness sort of style meditation. But I still feel so insecure about my practice and I'm so hard on myself when I sit down for 30 minutes And I've been really diligent about trying to get it into my day on a daily basis. And that's been the good part. But the bad part is I get frustrated with myself at the end of the 30 minutes if I don't feel like I was fully present or I was relaxed or I got into that zone or flow state or whatever you want to call it. How do you how would you respond to somebody that that is chastising themselves in that way (laughs) uh, for not having a fulfilling practice? Yeah, well, 
gosh, this, you know, I think it's very, very common. A lot of people feel that. And it's based on a very deep misconception uh, mm-hmm. that you're supposed to have a particular kind of experience in practice. And the analogy that uh, one teacher I like, Ken McLeod, talks about is the difference between uh, the goal in a practice and the experience, you know, that's actually as it's unfolding. So he uses the analogy of running. He says, you know, you, go, you, you run because you're after better cardiovascular health, you know, better physical cardiovascular health. But the experience of running is different uh, often every time. One day you might feel really invigorated. One day you might feel very sore and uh, uncomfortable. Another day you might feel like you just disappear into uh, this slushy, beautiful endorphins. <laughs> you know, it's just like the, the experience of running changes from moment to moment and from day to day. But over the long view, every run leads to better cardiovascular health. And it's identical with practice. You know, the experience of a meditation changes every day, you know, changes every time you sit there. And the big mistake people make is they have a juicy experience and they're, they're trying to get back to it. I think if they can't get back to it, then they're not doing it. But you can have a disastrous meditation in terms of the experience, what you interpret as a disaster, this meditation. But guess what? You know, not only do you feel better afterward, potentially, but in the long view, if you were to look at your life, you know, and this is why practice ultimately becomes your life, you realize that uh, you're doing you're way happier than you were a year ago, you know, or you're way more present or balanced. And, and it's your life is the place to really look up and, and detect if there is a progress or not. It's your life, you know, that's the place to look. But almost always there is a period of where things kind of come apart, where all of a sudden it feels like you can't get concentrated at all anymore and you can't get clear anymore. And what the hell is happening? And you're, it's a really hard Period. You know, I kind of write about these terrains on my website, but mm-hmm. I go through it all the time. I've just come through a period like this where I feel like I'm a meditation teacher and I'm crap at meditating, you know, at least in the way that I imagined I should have been doing. But what happens in a practice is the there's another terrain, uh, kind of a third terrain, which is the really rich terrain of what practice flows out into. And it's a terrain of where you're able to be with both the ups and the downs and you're fine. It's sort of the terrain of integration. You begin to detect that there's a quality in which you're bringing to your life that is more and more available all the time, regardless of whether you're in a good period or in in a challenging period. That's sort of where the practice leads. The analogy about running sort of resonates with me because as a runner, there is this kind of suffering in running, right? I mean, it's, it's not that comfortable and it isn't that pleasant when you're actually running and you're exhausted and you're sweating and then sometimes you're in pain but there's this kind of bliss that happens in certain moments within the run or after the run or whatever that are satisfying and so you do it again and i guess when you frame it in that way i feel better about being so hard on myself with respect to meditation because there is this kind of suffering and sitting on the pillow and dealing with yourself that I think is really difficult for at least for me and probably for a lot of people. The suffering part of a, cha- of a practice or the challenging part of being physically uncomfortable or feeling agitated, having to sit with that is part of the training. And many traditions deliberately relish that as opportunities to develop more equanimity, to open up 
to those experiences and not fight them. And in the opening, they move through us. So there is that. But then the so opposite. What do you what do you mean by equanimity? So you said? when I say so, equanimity is probably the most. I think it's the most important kind of muscle group that's being trained in practice, uh, whatever your practice is, whether it's a movement practice or a sitting practice. Mm-hmm. And it's this. It's non self interference. It's opening to the experience. It's doing the opposite of what you do. <laughs> so. It's not beating yourself up for having a meditation, which is totally human and and understandable, and we all do that. It's instead noticing that you're having this challenge, and instead of trying to like uh, wish it away or suppress it or ruminate about it and struggle with it in a different way, you completely radically accept the fact that you're now having a challenging moment in your experience, and you just open to it. You let yourself feel the sensations of challenge fully. You just let it all be there, and the act of Letting that happen is an act, is an equanimous act, and we can always we're continually kind of moving to the horizon line of being more equanimous. It's not pushing and pulling on your experience. As you do that, it's what allows that experience to pass, so you can then be refreshed and updated, and so the next moment can bring what it's going to bring. I feel like I'm the worst meditator ever. <laughs> Me too, man. Welcome. To the uh, yeah, so it's it's funny. Like you, uh, you mentioned Shinzen, so your your teacher. How did you guys meet, and how did you find him, and how did you choose him? I actually, how would someone choose a meditation teacher? Good question. You know, I was really looking for a long time. Like at that point, I had really sat with different lots of teachers and different traditions, and I just found that even though I had I could see the great the gifts of the practice and had some really interesting experiences and met lots of really cool teachers. I was a nerd and I was still interested in understanding from the perspective of consciousness what was actually happening in a practice. And I found that the uh, the language that teachers used was a kind of jargon that was preventing me from getting in for whatever reason for me. I mean, it might work perfectly for somebody else, but it just didn't click for me. And so I kept asking around people I respected for suggestions for a teacher. And actually, this guy, Charles Tart, who's a well-known sort of, he wrote his first anthology called Alterations of Consciousness. Uh, back in the 60s. So he's a well-known transpersonal psychologist. He recommended Shinzen Young. And I remember hearing, he told, I, he, I kind of took note of that, I wrote it down, but then I kind of forgot about it. And then a year later, another friend uh, in Toronto, my friend Hans, recommended him. So I thought, okay, here's two recommendations. I'm going to check it out. So Hans gave me access to his audio talks called The Science of Enlightenment. You know, this was 2008, and it just blew my mind because here was everything I was looking for. He was somebody who was who could really articulate the dynamics of how change happened and what was going on in the mind with that in a way that had a lot of rigor. I mean, he's a, he's really, he's he big science thinker guy. So he had the, the rigor, the scientific rigor in the phenomenology. He wasn't trying to reduce it to this is what's going on in the brain. I mean, he had a precision in the way he talked about it that reminded me of the best scientists that I knew. And the other thing about him that was really interesting is that he was willing to talk about the whole enchilada. So not just the kind of soft dharma, hey, let's come into the present moment and be a little less happy and a little less neurotic. He was like, okay, enlightenment. What is it? This is what it is. This is how it works. At the time, I was bowled over by that. I mean, I thought up until then, I kind of thought it was all bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, maybe there's something to this because he seems honest and he's talking about his direct experience. And so I went, eventually went to a retreat with him, loved it, and then I met a lot of the other practitioners there who are just very normal people in their 60s and 70s. So these are all folks who are psychotherapists, doctors, you know, managers, teachers, educators, and they were, so they all had a lot of 
they were honest, they had a lot of integrity, they were very sensible, and yet they were in the deep end of meditative change. They were, you know, they would describe experiences to me that were, from a journalistic point of view, fascinating. And so I got really interested in saying, okay, well, what is going on here? Why are we not hearing about this stuff in the mainstream? Uh, and, you know, I was a consciousness journalist as well as a meditator. So it was like the mother load, you know, I, I felt like I landed on this like treasure box filled with interesting stuff. Now I should say, even though I still consider him my main teacher and mentor, and I love the guy to death, there were, as I got to know his, his techniques better, you know, I kind of began to see where in some ways my experience was different than his. And that actually, you know, for me, more heartful language was more that appealed to another part of me that I didn't feel like I got so much from him, even though he's a very soulful dude. Um, you know, you kind of get to a point where you, you, that's interesting. Sense. So you feel like you, you somewhat graduated. Um, yeah, you kind of graduate. You, you, I graduated in a way. I mean, I'm never going to graduate. He, the way he experiences reality is a hundred times more deep and interesting than for me, but it's more like, as I learned my own nervous system better, I start to understand, I became my own teacher more. I started to see mm -hmm. what emphasis that I needed, uh, what was going to be healing for me. And now I practice in a way that's, you know, super inspired by him and informed by his view, but it, it's its own thing. And I teach in my own way too. And that, that's what happens to every teacher, actually. Anyone yeah. who starts to do that, you just, you kind of start to, in a way, you become your own tradition. Like, we, working within this tradition, you become your own you find your own sort of path and then that resonates with some people and not so much with others. And that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. So I want to be mindful of your time um, and switch gears because I, I definitely want to talk about your book that you co-authored with Dan Harris. First, I should say that after listening to him talk about you on various podcasts, there's clearly a bromance going on. I mean, how did you first meet and decide to co-author this thing? I actually, I wrote a piece in the New York Times online a thing called the opinionator it's called the uh the anxiety of the long distance meditator so it was about long distance it was about long meditation retreats and he happened to read it and sent me an email saying that he liked the piece and that did i want to kind of be friends and this was maybe five years four years ago or something five years ago i'm not sure yeah. Anyway, and we just became friends. You know, he was a broadcaster journalist in the U.S. T on TV, and he was he had the same enthusiasm, nerdy enthusiasm for practice that I had, and so we would you know geek out together a little bit, but you know, kind of an occasional pen pal back and forth. But yeah. at one point, I ended up in New York, and we met for lunch, and we super hit it off. And yeah, he's an awesome guy. I mean, he's just he's super funny. He's very neurotic. He had the same nerdy enthusiasm for practice that I do. <laughs> he was also interested in kind of just demystifying it and not speaking. He also had shared the same disdain for the way the practice can sometimes be presented in a way that's very precious and yeah. not to take away from the rich, beautiful, sacred, heartbreaking, beautiful dimensions of practice, which I'm all about. But it can be there can be this cloying quality in spiritual language and the way meditation is presented that is a real barrier of access to people. And so we both vibed on that level. I was actually his second choice to do the Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics book. He initially asked Joseph Goldstein, who's a way better and more experienced teacher than I am, kind of the great, one of the, the, the great meditation teachers in America, really. Yeah, he's he a would, tough guy to land, though. I mean, his, <laughs> he's having, Dan's had some trouble getting him on, the, on his podcast for an hour, let alone do a book about going on a road trip but well that was the thing actually it's funny what i found really funny about that i have so much respect for joseph because you know 
you can really see in that dude how he completely has integrated the principles of like of self-care and energy efficiency. This is one of the big things that emerges in practitioners over time. You know, I, he's he's Dan's friend. He probably would have would have done it, but he just was mm -hmm. like, yeah, that seems like a lot of work. I don't really <laughs> feel like doing that. And he doesn't, he could he could give a shit that it would be a big book or it would be this or that. He's like, yeah, he knows what he likes. He said no uh, in a very you know, on an awesome way, which you got to respect. And then Dan yeah. asked me and I was like, sure. But I love that about, you know, I was thinking about that after it's, he really, that's kind of a lot of what it's about. All right. So, so how did Dan pitch you the book idea? Hey dude, uh, I'm doing this book about that. We want to do a road trip across America. It'll be super fun. Do you want to do it? And I was like, okay. <laughs> I like the adventure, so I, mean, I who, who would like who, who wouldn't want to do it? I mean, it sounds like the most fun thing ever, and you yeah, guys rent it. Yeah. And I need money. I'm like, good. I need money. It's like I, I'm not. I do. I famously make choices that don't give me money. That's all my friends make fun of me. It's like you can come to me and say, hey, I'll pay you five hundred dollars for an hour for a, a meditation lesson, and I'll be like, fuck that. But then someone else will go, but hey, can you do me a two hour lesson? It's going to take a ton of energy and work and involve a bunch of follow up emails, and I won't give you any money. I'm like, well, that sounds intriguing. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to rewire my brain that way because my, my wife and I want to have a baby and I need to start making money. But uh, oh, yeah. but the fact that he was going to, that you know, we shared the advance in this book along with another, a third co-writer. It was generous. I mean, it was a win-win situation. I get to go hang out with my buddy, go see America and be able to, I'm motivated to help people. I just like doing that for whatever weird, hopefully non-creepy reason. It was, everything about it was great. And it's also a, a platform for me to kind of, get out there again because I was starting to be very low profile and I kind of could see I really was liking that and just kind of falling off the radar and so getting back on has been it's good for me to kind of you know be more out there I read that the rock star bus that you guys rented previously was occupied by parliament which I thought was the best piece of trivial info ever um, <laughs> yeah. very cool it's gonna be tough to get a complete summary of this experience in 15 minutes but what were the i guess biggest uh or the classic responses and or objections from people who were not meditating and what was it what was this experience like in terms of how successful you were at achieving your your goal yeah well i mean i i for me the primary interesting kind of thing that happened to the practice was just this opportunity to see how real people were trying to apply the practice in their lives like real demographics, like how are they doing it at these cadets doing it in a military context or these cops or these kids who are working with substance abuse problems or, you know, these psychiatrists. Like, so it was really visiting these different populations of people and seeing how they were really involved with trying to do the practice and learning what worked and what didn't work. So that was, to me, the big aha. Like, I just love that. But um, in terms of the actual challenges yeah it was really interesting you know you start to see themes emerge and we had an idea ahead of time what some of them would be but other ones we were surprised by and the ones that weren't surprising i don't have time <laughs> it's the main complaint because we're living in a insane culture where we think we need to be busy you know we need to be constantly checking and doing or uh, or we think we need to and indeed, we create a complicated life, so that is the way it needs to be. So we're so overstretched, and uh, and I have great empathy for people in that situation, as I am, um, particularly for people with young families and competitive jobs. And so there, that's a real concern. You know, people are you know, if the long term goal of practice is to make your life more meditative, 
it starts often by trying to find a place to fit meditation in your life. And one of the ways we, the hacks we came up with there to help people is sort of about working smart. You know, it's about looking for little moments of transition in your schedule or downtime. Like you arrive at work, you're in your car, you got five minutes right there. You can stay in the car and do a meditation or you can do one on your commute or, you know, you kind of, you figure out ways to kind of hack your schedule to put little, even like, and even a five minute practice is still worthwhile, you know, because in fact, two five minute practices a day, I would say is better than one half hour, even one hour a day because, or two or three, because you're, you want to, it's more about continuity than mm-hmm. it is about length. Like it's about getting familiar with surrendering and opening up to your experience and feeling your breath or whatever your practice is. That's a really valuable thing. So letting people know that they can do short meditations, that they can work with their schedule. Also teaching people how to integrate meditation. Like I was talking off the top into actual activity. So into standing in line at the ATM or even, you know, walking down the street, whatever it is that there are ways of making those more meditative. And the more you find those ways, the more the skills, the concentration, the clarity, the equanimity, the skills you're you're building flowed into the rest of your life. I'm sure you encounter this with type A personalities, high achievers, people that have been monetarily successful. When they say that they're concerned that meditation would be some sort of disruptor to that, what do you say? I say I say I have a different answer than than Dan. I say it might be. Dan says, no, 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 it won't. It's the opposite. It helps you with your edge. And I think they're both true. I think that what he's trying to point to is that you know, meditation can actually make you a lot more effective. If you mean edge in terms of your effectiveness, you're able to respond intelligently in the moment. Meditation can absolutely increase your capacity to do that in the sense that you're not, it teaches you to actually be more present with what's going on instead of with your idea of what you think is going on. And you're clear about your own responses, about where other people are at. You're in a million ways, it creates more clarity and efficiency and skillfulness and terms of how you interact. So that is true. And that's, I've absolutely found that in my life. Uh, but the corollary, not the corollary, the, the, the one piece of this that in terms of the edge piece that I think where there's some validity is that insofar as where, insofar as your edge came about because you were fixated on things needing to be a certain way, that you were fixated on your own anger as being the thing that's strong and propelling you or fixated on this idea of, of how you want to get something done or who you are in the world. What practice does, particularly a mindfulness practice, is it erodes those fixations. Uh-huh. Anywhere where you're gripping on your life so hard is a kind of neurosis. You know, It's like blocking the natural flow of energy in your life and responsiveness. The practice slowly starts to erode those. So those, in that sense, wherever your edge was connected to having to really have things having to be a certain way or being fixated in that way, when that falls out, people often find that these main, these drivers drop away. And then the person who is revealed underneath is slightly different than who they might've thought they wanted to be somebody who's a little more easygoing or who knows what it is. And that is, that does happen in practice. And we might think, Oh, I don't want to be that person before we're that person, but once we start to become more that person, we're usually pretty damn happy to be that person. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it's just, there's less suffering. There is still that more effectiveness. You're just effective in a slightly different way. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. 
Before I ask you for, for last thoughts for, for listeners who want to discover more about you and more about meditation, I got to ask for a quick story or highlight from the road trip. What was, could you think back of a specific uh, experience that you had on the bus or in a particular state that brings back amazing memories from that experience? I think the highlight for me was in um, Los Angeles. We met with this uh, writer's group of young juvenile offenders who were, they'd all spend time in, in uh, detention facilities and, you know, a lot of them struggled with uh, drug addiction and really serious challenges and problems. And they were all really interested in meditation and leading that practice. But it was more, what was so inspiring for me was had, it was less to do with the meditation. It was just seeing how their support community for each other, the way in which they use their own practice of listening and sharing practice of writing through their challenges, you, these writing exercises they would do, you know, you could really see how even without the meditation, they were involved in deeply healing practices that were changing who they were. And it was incredibly inspiring. They were so badass and so brave and so cool. And they're just, and I just felt like I learned as much from them as they were learning from us. And it brought home for me, my main interest, you know, which is really about you know, I'm not really a meditation evangelist. You know, I'm an evangelist for practice, for mm -hmm. being deliberate in your life about how you are taking an interest in it and finding a way to begin to come into relationship with the people around you, the world in a way that's more inherently fulfilling and frees up energy for service and creativity. I mean, that's the nut to crack. I think this is a good place to stop, Jeff. This was a great chat. Congratulations on everything. Uh, both books, The Head Trip, Travel Guide to Sleeping, Dreaming, and Waking, and obviously the newest uh, New York Times bestselling meditation for fidgety skeptics. Where can people find out more about your books and the Consciousness Explorers Club here in Toronto? Sure. Well, again, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. My, you know, I got a website, jeffwarren.org, lots of articles and talks and guided meditations on there, including information about uh, the book I did with Dan and, and Head Trip. And then there's my uh, nonprofit uh, that I do with a group of other good friends of mine, James and Aaron and Abby, Caitlin, and it's called the Consciousness Explorers Club. And there's a website, ccmeditate.com. And that's where I usually can be found. You know, there's resources on our website you can still use, guided practices and all the rest of it. So, so good luck well, to your practices out there. Yeah, appreciate it, Jeff. Congratulations on all your success. And uh I'm inspired. I'm sure the listeners are, are inspired by what you do. So keep it up. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Adam. Take care. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase. Experts in subscription e-commerce. Visit Scriberbase.com for more details. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And our good friends at Unbound Merino Stylish, simple merino wool apparel that can be worn for weeks without ever needing a wash. More at unboundmerino.com. Your positive support means a lot to us, so if you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, 
All In, The Spanish Remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big home. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid.